0: Hey Nailers fans, welcome into another episode of The Toolbox. I'm your host, DJ Abicella, and I have a tremendous guest for you on this episode. This is one of the most inspirational stories that I've been lucky to follow in my time here in Wheeling. A player who spent a little bit of time with the Nailers, went on to play for a few different ECHL teams. He's also beaten cancer twice in his life. It is Forward Chris Kushnerik. Kush, thanks so much for spending some time with me tonight. I know everybody's kind of trying to battle through right now, and well, if there's somebody who I know can put a positive spin on just about anything, it's you. So how are you doing? You're up in Ontario right now, right?
1: Yeah, I live in, uh, I live in Ottawa. I'm doing great, though. Like, I'm building a house right now, so that's keeping me really busy. While I'm building the house, I'm living with my parents, so spending a lot of time with mom and dad. Um, I'm not sure if I want to say that on the air You know, 30, 33 years old Living with your parents But <laughs> there's absolutely nothing wrong with it You know, there. If you Love your parents, you got a good relationship with them. Like, when else again are you going to be able to do that? So, I consider myself actually really lucky to be able to stay with them. But, uh, I'm yeah, I'm doing great, man. I have nothing to complain about. Roof over my head, I got uh, I'm still working, I do real estate appraisals. Obviously, the house keeps me busy. I've set the garage up with some weight equipment, and I'm just looking forward to getting back to life. So I look forward to rekindling the social connections more than anything. You know, I feel like that's something I miss, and uh, I miss restaurants, but apart from that, life very good how
0: you doing i'm doing fantastic i love the fact that you're diving into the real estate we've had a few former players that have gone that route i know christian minella does it out in the cincinnati area you played with him for a few seasons you're also doing some work you've been working still in hockey which is awesome i love the fact that even going past your playing days you're still able to be in love with the sport doing some coaching in the junior level with the ottawa junior senators huh yeah
1: i saw that uh that Manella's, uh he bought a house recently, and I believe he's a realtor now. Yeah, it, you know, it's just something that my my dad was really into. You know, the, the whole real estate thing, and Ottawa is an interesting market because it's rapidly growing faster than any Canadian city, and it's expanding like you wouldn't believe. So basically, everyone who's getting pushed out of like Toronto because the values are too high there, or the prices are too high, are all coming to Ottawa. So it's a really like interesting opportunity for that here. And then yeah. It, Coaching, um, basically coached with the Ottawa Junior Sanders for four years, took a bit of a step back this year in my fifth year, but then rejoined them at playoffs and then COVID happened. So I I don't really feel like I fully rejoined the team, you know, but uh, we were the two time defending champs and lost in the semifinals in the national championships last year but that was pretty cool you know it's uh it's a big commitment though like i was explaining to you earlier it's uh it's it's a lot of time and it's a lot of thankless hours at times but um i would say the relationships i made with my fellow coaches and some of the players is what made those four years worth it for sure
0: what's it like working with such a young group of players 16 to 20 year olds
1: it's interesting because like I, you know, I, I come from a somewhat different era, you know, like it, kids now are definitely, um, they're not cut from the same cloth as even like I would say guys in my era in the uh, the 80 birth years, especially after watching the last dance with Michael Jordan, like, you you know, you, you see like the competitiveness and you see like how hard he is on his teammates. You see, you know, I just find that we don't we're missing a lot of competitiveness in the uh, the youth now, but what I will say is that the skill level is outstanding everyone can skate so the game's faster you know everyone can shoot everyone can handle the puck so that that part is pretty impressive but you know i don't think the kids are as uh, mentally tough as you know the previous generations were so i find that uh, you got to be really careful with every kid you talk to because they're just not ready for feedback unless it's really massaged properly with like like positive feedback positive feedback positive feedback and then you tell them what they need to work on and hopefully you get the response you're looking for so I've <laughs> i found that was a bit of an adjustment i
0: was gonna say was that kind of the most eye-popping thing that you noticed from going from your playing days to the coaching days and kind of like
1: whoa i, I didn't realize that this would be a part of it yeah the, the biggest thing for me is like how much you're in tune with players body language I realize that uh, even like anywhere you go, sometimes it can be hard to read individuals. But you generally can get a pretty good read when a, when a player is moving and slouching, and you know you generally get a pretty good idea of whether or not they're complaining to other players in the team because they disagree with how things are going. But holy crap, like you are so in tune with body language. I think it's like one of the single most important indicators for a player as far as their commitment to their team from their coach's perspective. When you see a guy slouching when he comes off because you, you took him off the ice earlier, his shift was short, or uh, their linemate didn't make him a pass, like, you really notice those things, and it's just something that players need to be aware of. That was by far the... I knew it mattered, but it wasn't until I stood behind the bench and I, I watched it over a period of you know the four years where I, I really didn't realize how much emphasis should be put on it, you know? being able to be mentally tough and despite your frustration being able to like just be in that moment turn the other cheek and then get back out the next shift and, and just play hard you know don't worry about the stuff you can't control for example short shifts and not getting on the power play or your line mate not making you a pass or a d-man missing you missing you for a breakaway pass or you know whatever it might be so yeah that, that was the biggest eye-opener for me
0: you were lucky enough to be a part of some really good teams during your playing career we're going to talk about those during this interview as well but you had a chance as you mentioned to win two championships two bogart cups with the junior senators how cool was it to be a part of two championship teams and
1: kind of experience that from start to finish yeah i think the best part of those championships were the fact that we lost so the team that we beat five years ago they had won five championships in a row and they had beaten us the first year i coached five years ago they had beaten us in seven games in the finals We had won game six, like 9-1, to force the seventh game. And uh, they basically just squeaked by us in that seventh game at home. The year after that, we lost them again. I think we lost them in six games. Kudos to them because they set the bar, right? Like, they basically set the bar so high that everybody would have been forced to either step up their recruiting game and, you know, their development game or just allow them to run the league every year. So then that third year, I think we learned a lot from those two years. We had lost them previously. And, uh, yeah, we, we took them out, I think, in five games. And then in last year we, we took them out at six games. That's the Carlton Place Canadians. So being able to be resilient and and stick with it after some pretty devastating loss like we we hated them you know like there was a lot of bad blood and there was absolutely nothing i liked about that team and i wanted every part of me to be able to beat them so i remember just being so excited and happy after that first year we beat them but it's funny i like the second year that we won (laughs) it it was kind of anticlimactic because we'd already been there it was exciting but that first year I, i i just can't describe like just how happy we were to finally be able to elevate and and, um, get over that hump. It it definitely took a lot of resilience, especially for guys that have been there before, Uh, but it was worth every second of it.
0: I always say that you have to build up. You can't just win right away because you have to learn how to lose and you kind of have to learn how to build your stuff. And that's how I want to transition into your playing career. And we'll pick it up. Your sophomore year of college, you transferred to Robert Morris University right up the road from us in Pittsburgh. It was just the fifth year of the program's existence and in Division One. and as it started to build up, your senior year, that was huge for them as they moved to a larger conference, and it was the first time that the program had ever had a winning record. What was it like to see that program grow and really kind of be one of those first classes to set the bar and really shine for the school?
1: Well, what I would say about that last year moving to the Atlantic Hockey Conference was that I, I almost considered that like a bit of a step down, to be honest. Like It was nice to be able to land in a conference where, you actually had you had a future because we knew college hockey America there were only four teams well three plus Alabama who's now independent so like we always knew they'd be independent but what happens with only four teams in your conferences or three other teams in your conference you're playing all non-conference like we, we were playing a lot of tough out of conference games whereas in the Atlantic hockey it's a, a somewhat of a weaker division I would say if you just look by virtue of the number of guys that move on to uh the AHL and the NHL you could make that determination just based on that you know well, I would say that that, that move to the Atlantic Conference was, it simplified things a little bit, I think, because now you play far less non-conference games and you, you had programs that were still, I would use the word developing, but at the time, like, you know, AIC and Sacred Heart were really struggling. They're much better now, but at the time they were consistently fighting pretty poor records, right? So there wasn't much of that in College Hockey America before we had joined them because you we were playing non-conference and we rarely played Atlantic schools in our non-conference. We were playing, you know, we to North Dakota, we went to University of Minnesota, we went to Western Michigan, so I would say that, but it was fun to be a part of a program where you actually felt like you were a part of moving it forward and, and its progression. You know, with my junior year again to the, the the difficulty of our of our schedule like we played Miami when they were number one and we actually swept them which is probably the two biggest program wins outside of the championship win in, in their history right it, you know it was a very special program to be a part of you know I, I learned so much in I was just lucky to have that opportunity to go there after Wayne State had folded, really. It was definitely something special to be a part of because, you know, even now they still have the same coach and and we just still feel like a tight fraternity because there's only been, what, like 16 years of players go through there. So, uh, yeah, you know, I, I hold on to those memories pretty close to me.
0: Your senior year, you're starting to look towards the pro game. How was the process with coming to Wheeling? Was Stan Droolier recruiting you actively throughout the year? Did the proximity to Wheeling and Pittsburgh help in that process?
1: If we're on record here, I'll I'll just tell you sort of how that'll happen. I I got a bad concussion my senior year, so I didn't play all the games. And it kind of, like, put a damper because I I had such a good junior year where I was almost at a point of game. And uh, it just really frustrated me. And, you know, I wasn't as mentally tough then as I could have been because, for me, I was just like, you know what, I'm I'm throwing in the towel. I'm done. I've I've had it. Like, I've had a bad concussion. Uh, You know, I've been knocked down the line. Basically doing what the junior guys do that I coach that frustrates me. I, I was doing the same thing. So when the year was over, or the school year was over, I remember I had uh, an agency kind of working with me, but, you know, they, they weren't really doing much. He had said that Wheeling was interested, in and Stan had, like, actively reached out on a couple of occasions, but I still wasn't sure if I if I wanted to uh, to go there or not. So I actually went, and uh, I don't even know if Stan knows this, but I, I went away for spring break, and Stan had given me an ultimatum while I was on Panama City Beach, and he basically said, you need to let us know by tonight if you're coming or not. And I had told him that I <laughs> that I was studying for exams, that I couldn't go. And uh, yeah, so I I, <laughs> I was on Panama City Beach, and I told him that I, <laughs> I'd go play and I'd been there already for like five days and my lie about uh studying for exams I think was revealed when I met with Stan face to face a few days later and he saw that I was completely fried (laughs) 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 I I was torched from the sun yeah I gotta give him credit he didn't humiliate me or make me feel bad about it he's the kind of guy who gets everything from a player's perspective and he he might have even appreciated the fact that I went out and and lived a little bit at the end of my my college playing career and I think that I played well for Stan I thoroughly respected him on a personal level and, and on a coaching level yeah yeah he was he was great
0: Well, if there was even the slightest of doubt, I think you made up for it really, really quickly because you scored in the very first period of your very first game and you went on to score goals in four of your first five games pro. What made that transition so smooth from college to pro for you?
1: I want to say that I I went in with a free mind and I just said, like, I've almost got star power like in Marriott, you know? Like, it's like, I've got the star right now and what happens? Like, if, if, if it doesn't work out, then I, you know, go back to college and enjoy myself. Like, what do I have to lose? Why wouldn't I go out there and just have fun and firmly enjoy myself. Don't stress too much about systems. And I'm kind of, you know, I'm going back to that one conversation I had with Stan where I was asking a whole bunch of system questions uh, at practice before my first game and he just looked at me and he said, Cushy, just go out there and play pond hockey. Just go out there and show what you can do. You know, you're you're with two of the top players in the league. I was was playing with uh, Paul Crowder and Joey Haddad, which it's funny because when you walk into a new dressing room, you're sizing everyone up. You know, you're trying to think like, just by looking at guys like, who here is the top dog? Are, you know who are the guys that are the engine behind this team? I probably looked at stats, but I, you don't know any of the names yet. You know, so when I when I saw it was on, I was wearing gray with uh, Paul Crowder and Joey Hadad in practice. Like if you look at Paul Crowder and Joey Haddad, they look like average dudes. You know, like <laughs> Paul has the big afro, kind of goofy looking, and Joey's like he's so laid back. Always looks like he's kind of kind of bait. You know, <laughs> so. When I was with them two in practice, I, I didn't really think much of it. I thought I was on the fifth line. So when Stan told me I was with their top two guys, I was like, wow, like, this is great. I'm actually going to get a chance here to show what I can do. I'm just going to go out and have fun. And I think that that's what really made that transition easy for me, was that I just went out and I just like thoroughly enjoyed myself. And, uh, yeah, it, it was great. I really enjoyed and appreciated my time in Wheeling, and especially that playoff run.
0: That playoff run, you had the ultimate moment in it. Game 7, second round in Greenville. First of all, I always love asking this question, what were your emotions like playing in a Game 7? I'm sure it was one of the first times that you had ever done something like that
1: but that's another interesting story because I'd been healthy scratched in game six and I wasn't expecting to play in game seven because the guys that had filled my spot on the top line with Joey Haddad and and Paul Crowder, I think it was uh, Tim Crowder, and he had actually played a good game in game six, so I just assumed that I probably wasn't going to get back in. And so I remember I was I had a couple hot dogs in the stands. The, the Brooks brothers were were in Greenville, and they looked at me. They're like, "Oh yeah, game coup day." And then I, I looked over, and they were eating they, they also had a couple hot dogs. And I was like, "How about you guys? You too?" You know, I smiled and I and I left. And then the next morning we had morning skate, and I was walking out of the rink, and stand looked at me and said, "Like, Cushy, you ready to go tonight. Like, you're in." And I I was surprised, and I remember I had to write an exam that afternoon, and, you know, talking to not overthinking a situation, like, I wrote an exam, I hopped on the bus, I got to the rink, I was completely out of my routine of taking a nap and doing anything, you know, and I I just got there, and I I played free-spirited, and I think that our line had all four goals in that win. It was a 4-3 win, I believe, or 5-4, maybe you know.
0: You're right on the money. You had (laughs) three assists in regulation, 3-3, and then you scored the overtime winning goal
1: yeah exactly you know and it was one of those situations where there was no preparation it was just I'm going in and if this is the last game as a professional I play I'm just going to live in this moment I'm just going to enjoy this you know and hopefully I can uh, help elevate us and bring us a win and Kudos to Stan for giving me that opportunity to go in because, uh, yeah, you know, the, the line was just hot and we were clicking. It felt really good to answer your question to get that goal. I remember it was Joey put it right on my tape on the back door. I don't remember everything leading up to it, but I do remember in overtime a puck was trickling over the goal line and i i swatted it out earlier in the overtime and i I remember being like i'm gonna get rewarded because that's what always happens when (laughs) when when you make a great defensive play you get rewarded somewhere and I, i remember uh yeah i remember thinking about that after i scored
0: so you said hadad fed you you tapped it in and then just a complete swarm of wheeling nailers around you celebrating
1: yeah, and then the team hopped on the bus for Kalamazoo, and then I went back, to Robert Morris, to do another exam or something. I, I couldn't do it remotely, but yeah. So I, I, I believe I flew back to uh, Pittsburgh, and then I met the team in Kalamazoo. Wow,
0: that's I love hearing the stories, like the things that people would never know. That you were taking an exam the afternoon that you scored the game yeah. seven winning goal. That's <laughs>
1: absolutely wild yeah I, I was just in the uh the little hotel office probably cheated i can't remember but <laughs> <laughs>
0: That's incredible. So things took a different turn the next year. You end up getting traded from Wheeling to Bakersfield. And then in June, you were diagnosed with stage 4 testicular cancer, which is going to rock anybody's boat. What was the first thing that you did? Like, who was the first person that you turned to looking for the support that you needed to ultimately overcome what was a big life hurdle? Yeah, that that
1: year kind of sucked for me because I I spent that whole summer – you know that whole season just basically battling like an illness that was taking over my body right and I, I didn't know what was going on even in the summer and even in the, the Hamilton Bulldogs camp and when I came to Wheeling like I, I just kept attributing all these crazy pains I was having in my back in my side and you know going through my groin everything um just to the wear and tear of playing hockey but the reality is, is that I had a, a very aggressive disease that was taking over everything right so my recovery was just my recovery after games is terrible so if that all happened and the season had just ended. It wasn't a great year, and you know, I think I, I had two concussions that year too. And uh, it was just one of those years you wanted to forget. But I, I, I ended it on very good terms with the coach in Bakersfield. I was the first guy to resign with them, and I was looking forward to, uh, you know, what I thought was just going to be. I just had to get in better shape the next year. But the reality was, is that my, my condition was was worsening. And then in June, barely able to get out of bed, I went to the hospital and uh, found out that it. Yeah, I had the. metastatic particular cancer disease and basically if you're asking who i turned to i remember the first person i called was my dad but i I knew i was going to need more than that so i I became very rooted in my faith through that whole process, you know, and I, I'm guilty in the, in, the, in the fact that I've lost a little bit of that as time's gone on, but I didn't know what to do because the, the outlook was very grim. So I, I just turned to God to help me because I just didn't know. I figured whatever was going to happen was going to be in the, the hands of a higher power. And if it was going to be that I was going to have another chance at life, then it was going to be someone else's plan, you know, and, and just lucky enough, I, I was able to, to get that second chance. It took a while, but I got it.
0: The hockey family is so tight, too. How special was it to see the different teams that you played for, even teams that you played against, players stepping up to help raise money and help Hockey Fights Cancer and help you be able to ultimately thrive?
1: Yeah, what I will say is I was really moved by the teams that I had played for that really stepped up and, and jumped on board, you know, because the reality is that there's no way we could have afforded the special treatments I got or specialized treatments in Indianapolis, which I wouldn't have gotten here in Ottawa. There's no way we could have afforded it without, you know, Robert Morris, the Nailers. Bakersfield did a ton of fundraising. Like Bakersfield did a lot, you know, and former players, you know, guys doing their own little things and local events here in Ottawa. It came from so many different directions, and I can't help but think that that was before the time when all these various online fundraising platforms were available. So we had, like, a, the, the team chaplain and in and Wheeling, Gary Pignell who had put together my fundraising website, and uh, that, got, that got a lot of traffic because there weren't what are those, like, platforms now that people use. It's, what's it called? Like it's the GoFundMes? Uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah. The GoFundMe's and stuff, right? Because there's just so much to support out there. And like now that I had, you know, those weren't there, but I had my own website, myname.org, and we raised so much through that. And I just can't help but think that the timing for all of that to happen was perfect so yeah the, definitely the teams I was a part of you know the players I had played with the university I went to but overall like the ECHL as a um, as an organization didn't really step up and do much I was a little bit frustrated with that it, you know if I, if I were to be honest like I, they, I didn't really get much support there but the individual organizations that were a part of that did a tremendous amount of work for me and I owe them every ounce of gratitude that I have and if there's anyone who's listening that, that might have donated like I love you I thank you you know and (laughs) i wish i could like individually repay and like thank everyone now you
0: know that big day that they told you that you were cancer free must have been the ultimate day where were you how did you find out
1: oh man that was yeah like that's the thing right is that you had been going through it for a couple of years and all i kept getting was like bad news average news you know bad news Stable news, bad news, and it, it just, things were not looking, at no point did I have a whole lot of hope until I went to see um, Dr. Einhorn in Indianapolis, he's the doctor that treated Lance Armstrong, and so, you know, he, he brought me a glimmer of hope with uh, the, the, that stem cell treatment I did. I basically had two important follow-ups with him, the first one, he wasn't that pleased with how things had gone So I knew the next one was going to be that sort of, like, moment, whether or not you're going to make it or you're not going to make it. And I just remember, like, being in the hospital bed with my mom next to me. I remember being up all night the night before because I I just knew that that was, you know, the defining moment sort of thing. And I remember, like, it's such a surreal moment. I'll never forget it, but I was just sitting in the bed and I could hear his voice coming from down the hallway and I could just kind of tell in the tone, of, in the pitch of his voice that he was about to like deliver some good news. He's such a warm person that I know that it would have broken him just as much as my family to have to deliver bad news to me or any of his patients. That when, when I heard him coming down the hallway, I knew that he was going to deliver me good news. So he comes up to me, he's like, yeah, he's like, I guess you heard the good news. And I'm like, how am I going to hear the good news? You're the only guy that has it. And he's, he's like, and he gave me the index we were looking for was in the normal range. He basically told me that was the first time in the two years where he said, I think you're going to make it. And I, I just started crying. Yeah, it was very powerful. You know, like I, I just wanted to like hug my mom, text every person I knew, tell the world that everything was going to be okay. And I, I didn't think I'd ever be able to. Well, I knew that, you know, God was going to have a plan for me, but, you know, de- somewhere in me, I, I was so used to getting bad news that I was just constantly fighting those negative thoughts and to to get that good news was just you know it was it was something that i'll always be so grateful for you're on top of the world that's
0: that's amazing you were pretty quick too like and it takes a lot of work to get back into shape get back to being a professional hockey player how quick were you able to flip the switch and say all right i'm good i want to get back on that ice
1: I'd missed that one season, right? I missed the full year. That was the lockout year. So it wasn't a terrible year to not be there, right? Because there were there were already a lot of guys that were getting bumped out just due to the uh, the volume of AHL guys getting sent down and everything. So I knew that, that you know, once I was well, it was going to take me, I lost like 60 pounds, right? I'm used to being over 200 and I, I was probably 150 pounds at one point. I, I'd had a, you know, a massive surgery procedure that took so much out of me too after that um that good news that i got i still had to have a a big operation and so i i took six months to train and to get my strength back and to try and skate and, and do everything i could as fast as i could just with the hope of joining a team after christmas and so the issue i came across was that once all the teams started up their season's I didn't really have any good ice to get on unless I was jumping on the ice to practice with the junior team. So I was lucky that Robert Morris reached out to me and told me that I could go there and start my master's degree and work, you know, work in marketing. They'd give me some cushy, you know, student job where I essentially had to do nothing. And they basically (laughs) sponsored my grad school and let me skate with the team, you know, train with the team, strength and conditioning coach, and basically be a part of the guys again. And, you know, it wasn't just the fact that I was able to do that and build up myself physically, but mentally feeling like I was a part of the group again was exactly what I needed. I needed to get through this, like, uh, this mentality and this image of me being the sick guy, and I needed to get back to being, you know, Chris Kushnerick and doing the things that I love, the things that made me happy. And there, there was a healing process involved there, too. So, you know, I skated with Robert Morris from November through January and then sometime in February I visited Bakersfield and I I met with the general manager there I went to Bakersfield to thank the team for everything they had done for me and I wanted to meet with the GM there to tell him like listen like this is the team I want to join with like give me a shot I practiced with them and unfortunately told me like I just don't think you're ready for it I think you should go um, to the CHL or the SPHL to start and and I, I wasn't happy with that but you know that was that was like he had a good team and um, he 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 didn't owe me anything, right Like he was just he had a job to do and and that's what he felt was right for his team. So luckily I got connected with Mike Medill with the Las Vegas Wranglers. I knew the goalie there Mitchell Keith. And the Wranglers were really looking to shake things up. They were having a tough year. They reached out to me and I, I think I was on a plane within a few days. There wasn't much salary negotiation just due to the fact that I, I didn't really have a whole lot of leverage and I, I told Medill down I'm, I'm like, I'll just tell you on the phone right now. You just offer me league minimum like don't even let that be a factor in your decision i just want to get out there and show you what i can do (laughs) i got back in there but honestly dj like i needed so much more i needed that 18 or whatever games it was i played to get myself acclimated with that game speed to get my lungs going again you know like i needed to get back into game shape we finished out that year it was really good for me to get back out there and it opened up the door for me to go to florida you know it was that summer where i made all my all my progress and uh yeah when I when I joined Florida I, I had a pretty hot start to the year there and that was my last year we
0: talked about how before game seven your mind was focused on other things the comeback game with Las Vegas what was that day like were you having thoughts go through your head all day long I can't believe I'm back yeah. this is so great
1: yeah that's exactly what it was you know and and I appreciate you asking that just because I I rarely think about that game but anytime I do it brings me a lot of joy just to like be able to put myself back in that locker room you know the, the whole day I remember just thinking I can't believe this is happening I like I can't believe I'm putting on a jersey tonight and I'm going out and I'm competing doing the things I love again the things that I never thought I would have a chance to do again I was so like so fortunate and so blessed to have that opportunity and my heart just, like, bleeds for the people who weren't as fortunate as, as I was in my battle with it. And, there, you know, there's a lot of people. Everyone, everyone knows someone who threw it. Oftentimes, people know someone close to them. And I, I'm just so grateful that I had that opportunity. And knowing that they didn't fight any differently than I did, you know, I, I just know that I, I was so lucky. So I really cherish, like, every moment of that game, man. Like, it, uh, I don't think I scored in that game, but I scored in the second game. And I remember just like looking up to the sky, and my eyes were tearing up, and I I just couldn't believe it. You know, like it was like that surreal celebration that I had sat in a lonely hospital bed envisioning, you know, when you're you're trying to keep your mind on the path of positivity, and it came into fruition. I didn't play in the NHL, but I still consider myself the luckiest hockey player in the world. I'm going to guess that there were three
0: other games in your comeback that kind of hit you returning to Bakersfield to see former teammates there. Returning to wheeling to see former teammates and fans there. And then also playing in Indianapolis in front of Doctor Einhorn.
1: You're you're well versed, man. Those are those are probably the three that meant the most to me. Absolutely. I think that if I were to rank them, it would be Indianapolis Wheeling Bakersfield. Indianapolis just because Like, what are the odds of that? You know, the Fuel hadn't had a team in how many years? Maybe, you know, I don't know, a couple decades? Oh, yeah. They've just done that beautiful renovation on the uh, Coliseum or the fairgrounds, whatever it's called, and they brought a team back that year. I knew I wasn't going to end up playing for that that much longer, but I was going to give it a shot. And the fact that they came back and we had one game against the Fuel in Indianapolis, they weren't coming to us, we were going there. I immediately sent Dr. Einhorn an email and said, like, get all your staff there. Like, I want to see you all, you know? And, uh, yeah, that that game was special. Like, I remember I scored a goal in it. Um, They gave him a shout-out during the game. Like, so much love and appreciation and so much gratitude. Uh, you know the game against the nailers uh, being able to see Tercado, Baker you know we went out for dinner the night before I think I, I went over to their place they were so happy to see me out there and uh, it was just pure elation so that that was really special being able to connect and see some of the fans again there's a lot of the familiar faces I remember Jim uh, Kim Hupp was there you know guy <laughs> what what do they call that uh, his section in behind the nailers the two one five. Uh, the <laughs> Yeah, that's exactly what it was. So, you know, uh, being able to see, you know, Billy Higgins again, yeah. Like, that was just really, really special. I think Clark Donatelli was still the coach, like, so much. And then, uh, you know, Bakersfield was sort of like that redemption game where I just felt like I wanted to, like, prove the coach wrong sort of thing. But, again, like, so cool to be able like, I had such good, like, relationships there. The the announcer there, Mike Hart, was a good friend of mine. Uh, The team chaplain there, uh, Brian Langley, was someone I spoke with every single day going through my trial um, and he kept me close you know to God going through it answered all my questions he was there for the hardest times you absolutely hit the nail on the head it was uh those three games most special uh, upon return absolutely Dr. Einhorn got put to work
0: again as you ended up getting cancer back for a second time. But it seemed like you were prepared, he was prepared. Was the second go around a lot smoother but still also very gratifying when you ultimately beat it again?
1: Exactly. It was just so unexpected because I went in for my five-year follow-up two years ago and everything had been so good up to that point and everything i knew you know my chance of relapse was probably like a tenth of a percent at at the five-year mark i even remember i was leaving the gym and i was feeling great and i was debating not even going i was debating just saying like you know it's it's not worth my time like i know it's going to be fine like that's how far gone this whole thing was and then you get that news that at first she saw it and we thought it was a false positive and so we tested it again and it wasn't good again so then at that point I, i just reached out to dr einhorn i didn't know what to expect all those Feelings of anxiety and fear and all those feelings creep in again. You're, you know, you're only human, right? So, luckily, it was a situation that only required a surgery on my lung and we were able to get through it. I was able to rejoin the team I was coaching with a couple of months later. And uh, that was the year that we won the championship, actually, too. So, you know what? Like, it, it was extra special in that regard because. It was another story of, of victory over circumstance but i'm just again like really fortunate that we caught it at that time and you know what if i went for the five-year follow-up everything was fine but then whatever it was that was there that bad cell that was that began to act up would have happened a couple days after my five-year follow-up i wouldn't have caught it for a full year so you know luckily they're following me closely up to that and we caught it at the right time
0: it's incredible to hear how you're able to just go right in there and fight and persevere and come out on the right side of things and just it's got to be so inspiring for people to talk to you do you get a chance to speak a lot and really touch a lot of lives see people who are going through it and be their motivation just like a lot of your family and faith and hockey teammates work for you
1: Yeah, like I've done speaking at schools, do like awareness speaking at schools and stuff, but I would say a couple times a year, I get unique scenarios where somebody reaches out to me with regards to something testicular cancer related, and I I actively take a part in their lives. Like, it's interesting. There was a player for the, the hockey team at the University of Ottawa whose sister had reached out to me probably a year and a half ago, and she had let me know that her brother had been diagnosed with testicular cancer, And she was just wondering because she was concerned about the way that his case was being handled over in Quebec and was asking me if, you know, these types of things that they were doing were normal. So I I was kind of shocked with with what she was telling me. So I I reached out to Dr. Einhorn and connected them. And uh, basically, he was able to kickstart his healthcare team into gear because he's got this incredible reputation, right? So it only takes him a phone call to initiate action. And uh, I became a part of his whole journey as he was going through it. Because he had to do chemotherapy and surgeries and whatnot, and yeah, so you know, I've had a case like that. And last summer, a friend of mine from the gym got testicular cancer in Toronto, and he had actually first just told me like, "Listen, I'm I'm feeling some lumpiness in one of my testicles. Like, like I, I don't know what to do." He's like, "I just don't." He's like, "I don't think it's much," and I'm like, "You know what? It's probably nothing." But you better go and check anyway. You know, like, why, why wouldn't, what do you got to lose? You know, and like, in the event it is something, it's probably going to be simple. It's probably going to be a simple operation. You won't have to worry about anything after that. And he ended up going and he, he was diagnosed with it. So as rare as it is, It's very rare, you know, and most people that get tested and checked for it, it is just, you know, nothing or a cyst or whatever. It does happen, and it happens to young people. So I've been able to just be a part of quite a few people's lives as they go through something similar, and I I feel like that's a part of the reason why I'm still here. Um, I don't really, like, actively seek it, but I think that because my story became so publicized, Um, A lot of people, like, remember me for being the guy that went through um, cancer, so a lot of people do reach out to me, and I I welcome that, you know, anytime, um, anytime for a conversation or for advice about what I would do. So, yeah, it's definitely uh, something where, you know, I, I feel like I am a small part of this whole equation, maybe only for... A handful of people but it's something that i'm i get a lot of happiness and feeling like i can help someone else out
0: what would you say to folks right now who were in a situation where futures are very uncertain some people may have been affected family members friends just trying to work through day by day and hopefully get back to what was normal life very soon <laughs>
1: You know, I, I always come back to, for me, it's about just being resilient, trusting that, you know, everything is in God's hands. And he's going to, whatever he has planned, he's going to, you know, he's going to follow through with it. I was told this quote once, you know, don't worry until you got something to worry about. We tend to, tend to worry about whether or not we're going to have a job, whether or not we're going to be able to, you know, provide for the people that we love and all that. But the reality is that, you know, worrying isn't going to change anything. And uh, I, I think that if we could worry a little bit less and just focus on, enjoying the people that we have and just getting back to when things open up like working hard you know like having pride and going to work every day and like doing everything that you absolutely can To provide for the people that you love but to live a fulfilling life i think that that's that's something that i definitely like encourage people to do but having said that i I do completely understand that sometimes the times are tough and it's just you get bad news after bad news after bad news and you're going to have your days where you're down in the dumps but uh, having that resilience that ability that like "then don't break mentality where the next day you're going to bounce back you know something good's going to happen and it's going to spiral into a few good things the next thing you know you know you're 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 going to be in a in a much better situation so then don't break don't worry till you got something to worry about and every day like every day there's so much to be grateful for if you really do look for it but you know I, I do completely sympathize with people and uh understand that times can be difficult more difficult for some than others and i truly do hope that everybody can just get that end result that is positive or or they can turn a negative situation into a
0: positive somehow you mentioned at the start of the interview, you're doing the real estate thing, you're still involved with hockey. What else are you looking forward to as we continue to turn the pages into what's been already an incredible life for you?
1: <laughs> to be honest, BJ, like, I really try really hard not to look too much into the future. I try and embrace that, that day-by-day grind. So I look forward to, after this conversation, going and relaxing in bed. Maybe throwing on the movie, getting a good night's sleep, but waking up tomorrow morning, working out, going to the house and doing some work there, connecting with my family, connecting with friends, connecting with old friends like you. I don't think too far in advance because I I know that, you know, I don't want to lose sight of what I have in front of me. So I'm looking forward to just living, man. I don't have any big plans to, you know, go on holidays or vacation or anything. I've got a very good life and I'm extremely fortunate for it. And I'm sure at some point I'll be back in the wheel and hopefully a few people there that i I still recognize if not you know i'll be able to watch some good hockey eat some good food and uh you know life will be good
0: relaxation sounds absolutely perfect right now kush i can't thank you enough for spending so much time with me today Sharing your stories. I mean, they're absolutely incredible. I know that the folks in Wheeling appreciated what you did here. The Game 7 overtime winner, being able to follow your story, being able to see you come back to West Banko Arena as a member of the Everblades. And anytime that you want to come back to Wheeling, you let me know and we'll
1: hook you up. Sounds good, brother. Well, for uh, everyone listening out there, it's going to be okay. We're going to make it through this and, uh, you know, be resilient. But, uh, you know, I appreciate it. I love you all. Have a great night.
0: Super huge thanks once again to former Naylor Chris Kushnerik for joining me on this episode of The Toolbox. I am so glad that he was able to share his inspirational story for you to be able to hear it directly from him. Just an incredible journey that took him to a very challenging situation with cancer to being able to not only beat that, but come back and play and coach hockey. Just Incredible to be able to hear that success that he's been able to have. As we get ready to turn the page and look forward to the month of June, things are certainly going to start to ramp up on the hockey side of things as you'll notice that there will be a lot of roster notes coming out this month, whether it's the protected list, whether it's future considerations, deals being completed, qualifying offers at the end of the month. And I know that things are starting to get close where I'm expecting that we'll have a new head coach to announce within the next few weeks as well. So if you aren't following us already on our social media, Media channels, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Make sure you're doing that. You've already seen a couple of episodes of Nailing It Down, the story of the 2016 finals team, and also make sure you're on our email blasts as you will be able to stay up to date with all the latest going on with the Wheeling Nailers. This has been another episode of the Toolbox presented to you by Coors Light, the beer that's made to chill. I'm DJ Bissell saying thanks so much for tuning in today and we'll look forward to bringing you some more great content throughout the summer.